Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined, as usual, by my two co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you, Charles? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Rick? I'm doing all right. And Dr. Lee Johnson, how are you, Lee? Living large, living large. <laughs> so Rami just came over and saw that we walked into the bar and he's taking drink orders. Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? So Rami, I'm still kind of trying you out. I would like a Fireball and Diet Coke. I feel like I ordered it last week. He gave me a little bit of lip. I'm trying to just like get him used, get him used to this, to this high-minded drink order of mine. I'm gonna have a Fireball and Diet Coke. So I'm gonna start with my rave this week. My rave is about this comedian whose name is Trey Crowder. <laughs> His first name is spelled T-R-A-E. He's at Trey Crowder on both TikTok and Twitter. He self-identifies as a redneck comedian. He's the co-author of the liberal Redneck Manifesto. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dragon Dixie Out of the Dark is the <laughs> subtitle. But I am absolutely addicted to his Twitter feed and his TikTok feed. And I am going to play just a little taste of this comedian's genius. Waves of Americans are refusing to go on working terrible jobs for insulting salaries, and conservatives are not happy about it. Now they try to go about their daily ritual of driving their truck up to a window and screaming at it until a chicken sandwich comes out. And when that doesn't work because all the employees are gone, they take to Facebook. What does this country come to? What happened to the days when Americans would work long hours without complaining about things like a living wage or basic human dignity? And you hear this, it's like, man, y'all just really want slavery back, huh? Y'all still miss slavery that much? What is this insistence on licking the boot of these corporate overlords? Why is it so hard to understand that if they want people to continue sacrificing their health, time, and sanity by working for them in a pandemic, then they can compensate them commensurately for it, which, and I know it's a novel concept in this capitalist hellscape, means paying people enough money for both food and shelter. And I just think it's funny that it's happening at the same time as thousands of conservatives are walking away from their jobs because of their inalienable right to cough the plague onto your grandma. That's right, apparently, if you leave your job because you're tired of being a faceless cog in an inherently disrespectful machine that refuses to acknowledge your worth as a human being, that makes you lazy and entitled. But if you leave your job because you refuse to take even the most basic of precautions in the middle of the greatest global health crisis any of us have ever known, that makes you a patriot and a freedom fighter. These people think they have the fundamental right to endanger the health and safety of those around them because they find that wearing a mask makes it a little harder to mouth breathe. And then they call everybody else entitled my ass, man. Can I just can I just say that, like, is there a MacArthur Genius Grant that we can grant this guy? Because his content is consistently top notch. Everybody, please follow Trey Crowder on Twitter and TikTok. My rant this week is what appears to be our commitment, and I'm talking about culturally, but in particular, medical science's commitment to extending life at all costs without any regard whatsoever for the quality of life that's being extended. Actually, Rick and Charles and I were having a conversation about this offline, and I think that we all agreed that one of the things that we really need to think seriously about 
is how we're going to legislate right-to-die issues. As medical science progresses and as we're all able to live longer and longer, we really have to think about what the end of life looks like. I don't think right now most of us who know people who are at or approaching the end of life are envious of those last few years. So yeah, that's my rant is our lack of real serious thinking about end of life issues. All right. And Charles, what are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about? You know, this is my favorite time of year. And this is a time of year where friends of mine will fire up their fire pits, if that's not too redundant. Yeah, redundant, redundant, yeah, yeah. And sitting around, you know, deep into the night, enjoying a really good cigar and a really nice glass of bourbon. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and ask Rami for two fingers of Uncle Nearest neat yeah and uncle nearest is a pretty special bourbon it's um, part of the jack daniels line and made in celebration of uncle nearest the freed person who actually taught jack daniels how to make bourbon oh Oh, i did not know that story that's an amazing story yeah that's an amazing story so uncle nearest and they're still making money off of them over 150 years later, but it's a fantastic <laughs> bourbon and great with cigars. So, Rami, my good man, two fingers neat of Uncle Nearest. <laughs> Rami's like, thank God it's not a fireball. <laughs> <laughs> or Fresca. My rant this week is really just the general disappointing behavior of the American news media. Like, I understand that fundamentally these are private industries and it's all about getting clicks or selling copies or selling papers or getting ratings. But the ways in which they've approached the Democrats' attempt to form one of the largest domestic spending bills in over a half a century is so goddamn high school yearbookish, Mm. right? It's Mm -hmm. so immature and it's so painfully obvious that the media itself doesn't have the maturity to speak to the American public in very somber, sober, and guided ways about the intricacies of putting together this massive bill. Horse race political reporting drives me absolutely out of my mind. You know, because sometimes it's not just simply who's winning, who's losing, who's up, who's down. Sometimes people actually have to do the work of legislating, and that's meticulous work if done well. And you have to show people that it's worth the effort, no matter how laborious it may seem. So that's Preach. my that's my Preach. rant, the American news media. If I can jump on that rant, because I searched in vain a couple of days ago for a description of just what is in the package. (laughs) I I couldn't even find, like, what are we talking about? What are we buying? What are we paying for? You can't find a news article. He found a survey that was like, what do you think should be in the package? (laughs) (laughs) Right, and now you have commentators who are like, well, the Democrats have made a huge mistake by focusing upon the price tag of the original package of $3.5 trillion. And I'm like, no, that's the first thing that's always reported, whether it's online or in, in a magazine and newspaper. The media starts off with the price tag and then buries the lead down in the fifth paragraph of the third column. Oh, there's universal child care and there's free tuition for two-year community college. Well, there's SNAP benefits. Yeah, there's SNAP benefits. So it's not the Democrats. It's the news media. So that's my rant. Now, my rave 
And 15-year-old me would so want to be able to switch places <laughs> with 50-year-old me right now. And I haven't even seen this yet, but my rave is Denis Villeneuve's Doom. Okay. I have okay. been waiting for this since it was first announced three years ago that he would be directing this effort. I've been waiting for a remake of this film since I first saw David Lynch's version back in the early 80s, which for the time and the limits of science fiction special effects was okay. I mean, it's a weird enough text to where David Lynch's sensibilities actually have some purchase. But yeah. I've, I've read the source material. I've read the novel at least seven or eight times. I do think it's the greatest science fiction novel ever written. And I think Ooh. right now, Denis Villeneuve is the greatest sci-fi director that we have because he's able to bring together all the complex ideas, the nuance of any text that he approaches, whether it be Artifact or whether it be Blade Runner 2049. And now finally, one of the most singularly philosophically enriched and complex science fiction novels ever is in the hands of this crazy Quebecois. So that is my rant. <laughs> And how can this be? For he is the Quisach Hedorak. He is a Quisach Hedorak. <laughs> so, Rick, what are you having? And what are your rants and raves? I'm going to go back to one of my old uh, standbys. I'm going to have a Manhattan. I'm going to ask Rami to make it with rye, the original recipe, and see what kind of rye he has. And this week, I am ranting about Bluetooth. <laughs> You know, Bluetooth, when it works, it's like a miracle. Who would have imagined when we were children that sound would be floating through the air? But when it doesn't work, it's a mystery. Like, if, if something doesn't connect right away, you're fucked. That's it. You might as well just throw your computer in the garbage, throw your headset in the garbage, you're done. Um, You're like, control, all, delete. <laughs> I'm more like, control, alt, fuck you. <laughs> so uh, that's my rant. My rave, I was going to rave about following up a conversation we had offline. Uh, I was going to follow up on something Charles mentioned. He mentioned Ella Fitzgerald as one of his favorite vocalists. And I was going to rave about her version of Miss Otis Regrets. Miss Otis Regrets, she's unable to lunch. Today. But I think what instead I'm going to rave about is Justice Sotomayor's dissent in a recent Supreme Court decision. I don't want to make it so timely, but I think Justice Sotomayor is the only member of the current Supreme Court who has a fucking conscience. <laughs> Yeah. who actually understands the lives people actually live. I think she's going to go down in history, sadly, as one of the greatest writers of Supreme Court dissents. Sadly, I mean that she has to be dissenting all the time. But I, I yeah. think her most recent dissent in the decision not to stay the Texas SB-8 right. was an incredibly eloquent and impassioned plea 
and it shows that the law could also be passionate. Yeah, big up to the Bronx, baby. Big up to the boogie down. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. So, Charles, you're in the hot seat this week. What are we talking about? We are helping me to work out some of my own questions and concerns about the overlap and the role of race and religion in American society. You know, I come out of a black Baptist background, deeply connected to the South. My, my parents and grandparents migrated north. And so my re relationship to the church, my ideas about what religion does, though I don't believe the literal aspects of this now, still inform, I guess, my moral and my ethical code. And so I'm always perplexed, clear, but still angered and concerned in all of these warring emotions when I begin to see the ways in which particular political or sociological projects get enacted through American religious experience, particularly Christianity. And so, though this isn't a new phenomenon in terms of the ways in which we can call it white Christianity, but more effectively and specifically right-wing evangelical Christianity, it's not new. I mean, we can go back to the early 20th century and looks at the Scopes trial in terms of thinking about the ways in which particular agendas are filtered through these ideas about religion. But now over the past, probably since the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan actively courted the conservative wing of the evangelical movement into American politics, now we have to deal with a very real possibility of almost theocratic types of ideas and beliefs and institutions be erected within our statecraft. So these things I have, I, I want to talk about, I want to think about the ways in which various populations have been able to appropriate spiritual systems, a religious system in order to examine their own place and space within American society. So today's topic will be American Christianity. So Charles, I found in your introduction, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I see two aspects of American Christianity. You started pointing to how Reagan mobilized white evangelicals and brought him into the Republican Party. I was raised Catholic, and I think Reagan brought in a lot of working class Catholics as well. And so there was a decided mobilization of Christianity and frankly, a, a sort of ideological deployment of Christianity for right-wing purposes. Then, or maybe as a result of this, there is the attempt to claim that the founding fathers themselves founded this nation as a Christian nation, and that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are fundamentally based on Christian values once in a while, people will throw in Judeo and say Judeo-Christian values. But that itself, I think, is a, a falsification of the actual narrative of the Founding Fathers and their relation to religion in general and Christianity in particular. And, and so I'm wondering whether, in fact, this political deployment of Christianity in particular in the United States is in fact more recent than we normally consider it to be? That is a compelling question because I agree from what we know based on the documents left by the founding generation, this really kind of minority of colonists in British North America, they were deists for the most part or they were not completely invested 
in reestablishing the various types of national or imperial religious institutions that we find still, right? I guess in many cases attendant to Christianity, but not wanting to, I think, fall into the traps of the types of religious wars that we saw in Europe up through the, the 17th century. But at the same time, their perspective is not the perspective of those on the ground. Their perspective is not the perspective of, say, the Puritans who landed in what we now call Massachusetts. Their perspective is not the perspective of the Catholics who landed in what we now call Maryland. So we may want to think about that, that in terms of their religious ideologies, the elite of that society or that historic moment, very different from the common person. So that's A. But we also have to think very seriously about the ways in which, and this is not new or exclusive to the United States, right? This is a question we could have at a much broader global scale, especially if we're talking about monotheistic faiths. But we also have to take very seriously the ways in which Christianity in the United States, under European control, becomes a part of the arsenal of weapons in order to subjugate the populations that are indigenous too, and they get brought into, as a result of, say, the Atlantic slave trade, they get brought into the political, economic, and social cultural system of what would become the United States. So I, may, I reference Reagan because it is a particularly dramatic moment in this relationship between religion and right-wing politics that we see. And Reagan was so very overt in his courtship of the right-wing, which had already been engaged in the early 70s around questions of segregated religious schools and their ability to accept federal funds if they were still practicing segregation. And then that gets pushed into an anti-Roe v. Wade and anti-abortion or anti-choice movement. I guess my larger question and the way I'm thinking about it and what I want to talk about are the ways in which, though it has flashpoints within our history and cultural history, the ways in which American Christianity may be inherently woven into these particular racial class power dynamics and that it may not be American Christianity without it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the way that you just phrased that. I think that one of the things that I'm constantly... so. Full disclosure, I was a preacher's kid. I was raised in Really? A, you've I, never mentioned uh, that. You, you've never mentioned that. I, yeah. I just, and Rick, do you have any relationship to Poland? Because I've... I've... <laughs> also, I love Fireball and hate Oaks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so literally all you need to know about it. No, but I was raised in Protestant Christian family in the Wesleyan tradition. One of the things that strikes me as in many ways just incomprehensible about American Christianity is how unchristian it is in terms of like the fundamental tenets of Christianity. I think that what we see as defining characteristics of American Christianity are economic commitments that are contrary to what I think are the fundamental I would say economic commitments of Christianity, but of course they're not economic commitments. I mean, they're obligations in terms of quite literally giving away everything you own and helping the poor. I mean, Jesus says to his disciples, give away everything you own and follow me. I think that also what characterizes American Christianity is a antagonism, not only to other believers, 
which may be consistent with the fundamental tenets of Christianity, depending on how strictly you read the first commandment, but definitely contrary to the fundamental tenets of Christianity in the sense that one has an obligation to love your neighbors. I think that also what's very, very, very characteristic of American Christianity is a commitment to a kind of literal reading of the Bible, which is never literal, that is always driven by political agendas, which are quite often anti-poor, anti-queer, anti-women, and anti-foreigner, stranger, widow, orphan, other. I don't know that I've ever been able to really reconcile that in my own mind. I, I don't know that there's anything about, when I think like of American Christianity, that there's anything about it that I recognize as Christianity. But I've always considered this, and again, I come at this from being raised Catholic. And I, I should say also, I was in the seminary for a little while. So it was a little bit more than just being raised. The fact that, as Charles was pointing out earlier, the sort of backbone of American Christianity is Protestant, surely. And then a, mm -hmm. a particular version of Protestantism that I mean, one of Luther's main claims, you know, when he's at the Diet of Worms is he says, here I stand, I can do no other. And I mm -hmm. take this as emblematic of a kind of Protestant theology, namely that if salvation doesn't come through works, it's just faith. Now I am alone all by myself in my relationship to God and fuck all you because that doesn't matter to me, right? And, yeah. and so that kind of version, and when I think about, for example, Puritans, I just picture them like sitting in a plain looking room, just sitting, everyone's <laughs> sitting quietly for like an hour. And then maybe someone reads the Bible and then they go home. And, and so you're, you're not really in a community. Good times. Good times. Right? I, I, I don't picture the big Puritan altar call. Yeah, right. I do. It was called Burning the Witches. Right. <laughs> That's when community really came together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, oh for God sure. God bless Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> well, I mean, Charles, that's actually interesting. Uh, it's the flip side of my point is that they can come together as a community for stuff like that, right? And, right. and so there is a political motivation for coming together as a community, but there's not really a religious motivation. But then on right, the other right. hand, I look at the experience of a few times where I've been at either a Black Baptist church or an AME church. That seems to me to be fundamentally community, for better or for worse, but it does seem to be fundamentally community. You know, I wonder if what we're trying to get to are the valences of Christianity based upon the social or cultural or historical position of the practitioner. Because it seems to me, in terms of your description, broad description of a Black Baptist church and thinking about the Puritans, I mean, one has to think about the ways in which a class position or a position of power is feeding into one's transmutation of the core beliefs of the system. Because you're right. I'm going back to Lee's point. In terms of what I think about as the tenets of Christianity, 
And I'm actually talking about the red dialogue in the New Testament. <laughs> in the Bible. Yeah, right. I love that. Yes, the red print. I'm talking the, the red print. I'm not talking about the Old Testament. I'm not talking about Paul, right? Because there's a question there. Are you a Christian or are you a Paulinian? Are you a Pauline? Right. Yeah, yeah. Are yeah. you a Pauline? But I'm talking about those words. And to me, that's definitively Christian. So when you talk about the ways in which exemplars or Christian-based movements that we see nowadays being so antithetical to what we are getting as reportedly Jesus of Nazareth has said, the only thing that comes to my mind that makes this a distinctive faith is what is the power position of the people who are articulating this idea of Christianity? Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that thing about red prick Christianity because (laughs) I've used exactly that phrase with my friends so many times. But if we are trying to boil down the fundamentals of red print Christianity, it's really only two things, love and forgive. That's it. That's the whole damn story. That's it, right? And the only thing that it says unequivocally in the negative is... There's exactly one way that you cannot get into heaven, which is to be rich. (laughs) It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, right? (laughs) So I think that this is one of the things that I just find so baffling about American Christianity and its commitment to, for example, like prosperity, gospels, and its commitment to uh, refusal to help on the one hand, but quite oftentimes the actual hatred and antagonism and aggression towards the other that seemed to me to be entirely American and not at all Christian. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, If you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is... At Dr. Lee M. Johnson, the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. I remember there was a great podcast I used to listen to, you know, maybe 10 years ago when I first started getting to podcasts. It was called, I think, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Right, yeah. these really long, like probably four or five hour lectures on very specific historical events or, or moments. And he had one basically discussing the transformation that Christianity goes through when it comes into contact with Germanic tribes of mm-hmm. Europe like mm-hmm. 1,500 years ago. And he begins to talk about the ways in which this becomes a, a warrior Christianity. And, and that's to say, we can think about as not uncommon the ways in which the ethos of a society, whether it be militaristic or whether it be one of domination or whether it be a hegemonic group, 
the ways in which they're able to appropriate Christianity, and it begins to reflect things that are completely antithetical to what maybe Jesus of Nazareth may have originally intended. So I want to stick with that base as we begin to talk about the ways in which racial hierarchies get established within, obviously, the United States, and how the Christianity that we're wrestling with, the, the xenophobia, and really the greed, for lack of a better term, the material sort of acquisitiveness, is if that is that a word? Can we say yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, acquisitiveness. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, woof! I was just going out on a limb with that one. Get it? <laughs> right. you, you started that, and you didn't know if you were going to stick the dismount. <laughs> there's, there's darkness at the edge of that limb. <laughs> But I want to think about that as maybe being, and this is so cynical, but maybe it being impossible for those early Christian groups and their descendants that we now are encountering. Is it impossible for them to separate those sensibilities and that ethos from their understanding of of Christianity? And it's a very alien thing. And we're beginning to get a sense of the ways in which the belief or the articulation or the formulation of Christianity are so reflected in one's historical positioning and one's social positioning as well. It's interesting to me because part of what I hear you saying, Charles, is that Christianity, well, perhaps religion in general, but Christianity in particular can be used in the hands of the hegemonic class to keep power, to keep control of populations, to arrange hierarchies, and so on. And it can also be used by the oppressed as a rallying cry to rise up. And, you know, Jesus says we should fight for this and so on. So it it can be used in, in both ways. When you were talking, one thing that occurred to me is in Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, he sets this novel within a debate within 14th century Catholicism about whether Jesus and the apostles owned their clothes. And the debate was whether the church should divest itself of all property or not. And the Franciscans were saying, yes, the church should divest itself of all property. But there's a moment in both the novel, I don't think it appears in the movie, where one of the monks dumps the garbage outside the monastery, and every time he does it, he says, and here's another donation to the poor. And and so, like, this Christianity can also be, whereas Jesus in the red print, all he says is feed the poor, clothe the naked, give housing to the unhoused, Comfort the afflicted. Yeah, comfort the afflicted. And yet this comes within the hands of, for lack of a better term, the ruling classes to be the very mechanism of oppression. But if I, depending on which parts of the red print I read, it can also be a, a mechanism of liberation. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so curious about this, because I think it's engaged in my own project of trying to think about what it means to be human and the possibilities of human beings, the possibility of, you know, this is a term that Rick always pays attention to when I mention it, but transcendence, Mm. right? Can we, can this species, can Homo sapiens, sapiens, can sentient beings expand beyond the limits of our psychological, emotional, if we believe in this idea of spiritual capabilities? Can we be more? You want to call that godlike, you want to call it angelic, whatever. So I'm always thinking about that 
what I just described in context of what we have been describing about the ways in which certain populations, historical and contemporary groupings, have utilized Christianity. And I'm always thinking about how are you conceiving your humanity in relationship to your practices of Christianity? Have you taken your humanity and the, the confirmation of that question do you already assume that and then that allows for you to behave and act and believe in certain ways? Or are you someone whose idea of Christianity gets enacted and get displayed and gets achieved through particular actions, i.e. red letter Christianity? So if we're thinking about questions of community and we can think about them culturally, we can think about the historical necessity of communities or the recognition and the dependence upon this thing called community, and I'm going back to Rick's example of black churches connecting to my own experience, you know, I always think that the ways in which black churches engage, certainly we can talk about pre-Western indigenous African forms that get transported over to the West, but also we can think about just the necessity of this marginalized group of people having to become codependent on each other for mere survival. And that's the cultivation mm-hmm. of community. But then you throw this biblical text into the mix of that, and there's the discerning of certain ideas, practices, and beliefs as understood within their context. And now it becomes, oh, we have to behave in this way in order to maintain community, but we also have to behave in this way because we're trying to strive toward an idea of humanity, that it gets laid out based upon our previous practices pre-indigenous or pre-western but as well based upon the lessons that we're learning or the ways in which we're choosing to learn and understand these lessons from this westernized text so do you think that american christianity is its own religion i'm so tempted what makes me hesitate is thinking about the ways in which christianity gets practiced in the early years of westward expansion coming out of europe and so to some degree, not as complete as the United States, but the racialization of religious ideology, certainly the bonding to economic drives or designs is already in place. The relationship between violence and religion is already there, whether we think about the Crusades or whether we think about the Inquisition or whether we think about the various religious wars that splattered across Western Europe for over 200 years. So that's what makes me hesitate to say that there's something distinct and unique about American Christianity as we're talking about it. And I don't want to leave out the more progressive or the left-wing denominations. I don't want our listeners to think that the only American Christianity is what we have been describing as being very problematic and seemingly antithetical to the original teachings of Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. See, I, I actually do want to say that. I do want to say, like, what Br- I would Bring the hammer. Uh, uh, Lisa says, fuck yeah, it. Yeah. In the name of being a PK, I'm bringing the judgment. <laughs> I mean, I, I would want to say that something that I would call American Christianity is a very problematic version of Christianity. And I think that we can see it outside of America. So we can see copies of it, for example, in Brazil, where it's this prosperity gospel antagonistic, fundamentalist, literalist, politically right-wing version of what I think we, we would miscall Christianity. But it's a fusing of American idolatry, like the idolatrous religion of America with the idol being America and Christianity. I think that that is a very specific phenomenon that is very specific to America that has been copied elsewhere. I think that we can see... Obviously, many other versions of 
Christianity in America that I would not want to call American Christianity. But I think that when I say American Christianity, I'm talking about something that is deeply problematic and is, in my view, not Christian and is itself a, its own kind of religion. But my worry with that, Lee, is that then it, it seems as if the Christianity part is incidental or accidental and that this American, whatever religion it would be, it could have been another religion and it would have had the same kind of function. For me, one of the main characteristics of American Christianity would be, and Charles kind of indicated this at the beginning of the conversation, would be a central core of puritanical religion. And that this central core of puritanical religion then gets expanded in various ways. And therefore, I think Christianity is essential here. And so I think it's Christianity that's American rather than American that's Christian. I don't disagree with that last point. I, I do think that it's Christianity that's American. So when I'm saying like American Christianity, it's this fusion of a kind of fundamentally American ideology given the steroid boost of a god to kind of make it into its own phenomenon. I will say that I don't think that it's fundamentally puritanical on this basis. I think that a uh, characteristic of American Christianity is a commitment to a kind of what we now call prosperity gospel. I think that is anti-puritanical. I think that what we see in American Christianity ignores all of the part of Christianity that is about not being the camel who's trying to pass through the eye of the needle, but is about the promise of the rewards of the righteous, reaping those rewards of the righteous. And that to me is not fundamentally puritanical. Except, what, I mean, the only reason why I would say that it is fundamentally puritanical is maybe I'm too influenced by Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, that it's not as if the Puritans, both back in England and, and the Huguenot in France, it, it's not that they weren't making money and incredibly prosperous. It's just that they were, for lack of a better righteous. term, they, they, were, were righteous. they were righteous and cheap. So, yeah. um, and, and so I think there is not a disconnect between being Puritanical and this prosperity gospel. Okay, fair. No, I, I'm on board with Rick because maybe it is a Weber. Because right, I was thinking the very same thing in terms of not just only the investment and material acquisition as a reflection of, of your standing in God's sight, your savedness, but also the very sort of repressive nature and practice of the system. Studs Terkel, whom I love, yeah. had a great line. The, the, the Puritans didn't come to the United States to guarantee uh, religious freedom. They came to the United States to make sure no one else practiced religious freedom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. But I think you're on to a point that there's something very specific to America, what we're seeing the rapacious nature on all fronts of the expression or the practice of Christianity. And Lee, you're right, the ways in which 
through a very aggressive missionary tactic, we begin to see the ways in which right-wing Protestantism, evangelical Christianity, is really setting up very serious base camps across South America and now within various African nations. And we can begin to see the prejudices and the biases of the American example of this or the American expression of this in policies right across the mm-hmm. planet of uh, the recent anti-LGBTQ legislation that popped up in Uganda was traced to the influence of American missionaries and their influence over Ugandan political officials. So it leads me, and this is certainly not a new idea whatsoever, but it certainly leads me to believe that the nature of religion or the nature of a faith or an ideology is really about what people bring to it and how they influence and how they shape it versus the reverse. To go back to Godfather 3, and I know Rick will appreciate this, <laughs> when Don Corleone is in a courtyard and he's having confession with the cardinal, and the cardinal says, Christianity in Europe has been like a stone at the bottom of a river. The water has really passed over it, but it has not cracked the inside of the stone. I think what we have to take very seriously is that in this case of American Christianity, the stone has dissolved and the contents of the stone have begun to affect, influence, and poison the waters of Christianity. You listen to us and we want to hear from you. If you've got feedback, suggestions for future topics, Or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, we encourage you to visit www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page, where we often solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to hear yourself on HBS, you can always email us a less than two minutes audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we may use it. And if it's not, we'll definitely send you our Venmo handles so that you can virtually buy us a drink. Now, back to the conversation. I'm now getting the sense that in talking about American Christianity, we're kind of in a place very similar to where we got with the white working class. Namely, that the emphasis on that was white. And from what, Lee, what, where you just ended in the last segment, I'm now thinking that this kind of Christianity that we're calling American Christianity is really unthinkable without thinking of whiteness and white supremacy. But then I worry that we've lost a little bit of this transcendence that Charles brings up frequently that there is an aspect of Christianity, maybe just as one particular form, but we lose then a recognition that maybe what it means to be human necessarily includes an element of this kind of transcendence. I guess another way of putting this is, have we gone too negative and we've lost something? So Charles, maybe you were thinking a similar thing, or maybe you're not worried that we lost your transcendence. No, that may be the core of my concern with all of these various articulations and practices of Christianity, that these populations that practice the types of Christianity that we have been very critical of may be suffering a certain type of disconnect from what may be a universal spiritual state. 
and they may interpret, and this is all pure speculation, but it seems to me that consciously shutting off the other, making the other it and not a thou, may be the fundamental way in which transcendence or the possibility of transcendence gets lost. Uh, Lee and I have explained or talked about this idea of the altar call at the end of certain types of Baptist, black or white, right? Certain type of Baptist services. And you, Rick, have talked about your experiences in black churches. And what always strikes me about those moments are the ways in which people are giving up their subjectivity. Everyone's listening to the same music. Everyone is listening to the same um, words coming from the minister. Even spatially, people are coming together and no longer are separated from each other within the pews. So that surrender of subjectivity, that, that openness to connecting and merging with others in a particular sort of way, may be the foundation of the transcendence. And what we see from this practice of Christianity may be a loss of that. But it's an unrealized loss, right? These people may not know what they are not experiencing. Now, the flip side is that that sense of community, that sense of merging with the larger body, that sense of losing one's subjectivity for a universal experience could still be happening in the context of white supremacist practices. The white supremacy itself is the religion, not Christianity. Mm. Christianity is just a word for what people don't want to call white supremacist theological engagement or white supremacist spiritual practice. And a part of that practice is violence. A part of that practice is the exclusion and the xenophobia that are necessary in order for this particular community to feel universal within itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, I would say that what makes American Christianity American Christianity American. is that, <laughs> is that right? American Christianity is that it is not universal. So I think what is troublesome, and again, when I think about what American Christianity is, there's almost nothing about it to celebrate and almost everything about it to criticize. And I think that that is exactly because of this, is because it has lost the core notion, a core Catholic notion of the universal community of believers. Wherever two or three or more are gathered, God is there and there is a community, right? That its idea of itself is as a fisherman of the lost, all the rest of the lost world that need to be enlightened, need to be saved, you know, all, all of these sorts of things. This is such a core part of the ethos of what I'm calling American Christianity that I think that it's hard for me to find in it all of the beautiful, transformative, salvific elements of Christianity. That this is not a story... That is a universal story, a transcendent story, a story about a divine that pressed himself into flesh to show his love for his creation or God's love for its creation. But rather, this is a kind of self-appointed mission that presents itself under the guise of a calling. And that, that's what worries me about it. I mean, the way you've described it, and I don't disagree— it sounds closer to the systems that existed prior to certain monotheistic faiths, right? One thing that I'm always impressed with, based on the Christianity, as I understand it from Jesus of Nazareth, is that it moves beyond the tribal or the ethnic-specific practices, and it becomes and opens itself up to all can come. 
it doesn't matter. Like the story of the Good Samaritan is a perfect example. Anyone can come into this faith and become a part of this larger family. And Islam as well, right? Islam is a universal religion at its origins. And it sounds like that what's happened is the racialization of identity within America has returned it back to this ethnic-specific, this tribalist way of being and thinking about um, one's group within the world and what it takes to maintain a part of one's group within the world. Now, I will say this, though. This is not exclusive because there are elements of this practice that bleed into other groups. I'm not sure if it was Lee or if it was Rick talking about prosperity gospel as an element of the avaraciousness that American Christianity can display. And there are a lot of prosperity gospel mega churches within the African-American community. Yeah. And it very much, in, in terms of my interpretation, comes off as this just justification for material desires that in some ways are very, very contradictory to the Christianity of my upbringing, which did not extol riches, did not extol the gaining of material assets, did not extol as a symbol of God's love for you, whether or not you had a big house and nice clothes and a fancy car. There's a humility about the Christianity I remember growing up in, but now this middle-class bourgeois sentiment is now bleeding into quarters of the African-American religious community. This is kind of tagging on to, or, or maybe an addendum to what I think Rick's earlier point was, where Rick is trying to focus on the centrality of white supremacy to what I was calling American Christianity. I don't think that race is necessarily the only anchor of American Christianity. I think absolutely capitalism is the other anchor. You know, my father used to say, steer clear of any church with a gymnasium, right? <laughs> because, because you know, that, that church is spending money where money doesn't need to be spent, right? Oh, yeah. So I think you see that in Asian Christian churches and African-American Christian churches and Hispanic Christian churches and white Christian churches, that church as corporation model. And so that, I think, is also very, very, very indicative of what I think we'd call American Christianity. So yes, race is an anchor. Capitalism is an anchor. I think the other anchor is a very specifically American sense of exceptionalism, of being the center of the world, the savior of the world, the fisherman of men. So I have a question for both of you, though. I wonder if you can think of a correlate in another religion of what we've just described as American Christianity. Because I, I think that there is something that we do have to think about seriously. Is like, why does Christianity lend itself so easily to being co-opted by a kind of Americanist religion? So it's hard for me to think of what, like how I would describe American Islam or American Judaism or American Buddhism or, you know, that it does seem like American Christianity stands alone here. Well, two things. One is when the two words American and Buddhism come together, all I think about is (laughs) that's a corporation. (laughs) <laughs> like that that's for that's a place for Karen to go to feel good about herself. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I I have a, a weird story uh related to this. And I'm going to pull a Lee here where Lee often says 
This might not sound like it's an answer to your question, but trust me, I'll get there. (laughs) So I teach from time to time at Fudan University in Shanghai. And the first time I was there, they assigned a grad student to make sure that I didn't like get lost or, you know, wander around in an enormous city. And one day I said to him, I want to go to this old ancient temple of the city gods. And so he's like, okay. And so we get on a bus and we're going and then we get off the bus and we're walking down the street and I look over and there is a church there that looks like it was ripped out of Spain or Italy or Portugal and plopped down right in the middle of Shanghai. It was a Gothic Catholic church. And so I said, can we go in? And he's like, sure. And we go in and the place has probably, I don't know, 60, 70 people in it, Chinese people who are lighting candles and praying and so on. There was no service going on, no mass going on. And I said to Cheng Shaodan, I didn't realize there were so many Catholics in China. And he turned to me and he's like, these people aren't Catholic. I said, well, what the, what the hell are they doing here? He said, well... I think they're on their way to the temple of the city gods and they look and they're like, well, might as well stop in here. Here's another god. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and he's like, you don't understand that traditional Chinese religion, which still is being practiced in China today. He said it's entirely transactional. So right. you, you go to the temple because you want your son to get a job or your uh, daughter to get an apartment or to have a nice marriage and so on. And it's entirely transactional. And in that sense, not really all that transcendent in any way whatsoever. And I feel like what Charles was saying earlier, if I don't misunderstand, is that that experience the human experience of transcendence in what we're calling American Christianity gets cathected onto whiteness rather than the universal Christian church. And so my transcendence now is in in terms of my whiteness and our whiteness and then becomes exclusionary and so on. And it's that cathexis that is, I think, particularly American and I wonder if it's not this kind of fundamental Protestantism at the core of American Christianity that doesn't allow for that cathexis of transcendence. But then how do you explain how it is that you see these dominant strains of the way we've described American Christianity thus far in African-American churches and Latinx churches and Asian churches? So you see the Churches Corporation, you see the anti-LGBTQ drives, you see the very American missionary project. So I'm not disagreeing that American racial politics, which are always the politics of white supremacy, are very much a core characteristic of what I'm calling American Christianity. But I think there are other anchors. So I don't think it's just about white Protestantism writ large. I think that there are other I, I take your point. And, and, and so another form of cathexis could be to cathect this on to prosperity as a sign, yeah. uh, as Charles said, as a sign a virtue. Of, of my yeah. closeness to God and as a, a result of my being saved. And that capitalist cathexis, I think, 
crosses through and also outside of the politics of white supremacy. Sure. And I think that capitalist cathexis is a very American version of capitalism, which is very different than Chinese capitalism. For sure. Right. So unlike the kind of Chinese version of capitalism, which is almost perfectly transactional, the American version of capitalism always has this underlying narrative about virtue and vice. Yes. And also freedom. Right. Yeah. I, have, I have the freedom to be rapacious. I have exactly. the freedom to be dismissive. I have the freedom to not depend upon others and construct a whole morality tale about my independence, which is completely false, but right. I have the freedom to do that. Right. So I just saw Rami signaling last call. And so before he turns the lights on and we see one another in the bright fluorescent lights of the bar... <laughs> Charles, is there anything we've left out? Is there something you want to bring us back to? What are your last thoughts about this? I feel like this is just the first step in a larger conversation, because I think that there's a flip side to this coin that we have not addressed, which are the ways in which marginalized groups, and not just groups of color, but also poor whites, have also found ways by which to find this suppressive idea of Christianity and transform it into something much more progressive, much more resistant, and much more liberatory with transcendent elements as well Mm. that may Mm. be lacking from the dominant expression of this. And I think that we've only just begun to really have this conversation. And I think this is an important conversation if we really look at the effect that the right-wing evangelical movement is having upon the state. And we're going to have to think about ways by which progressive Christians in America will have to gear up for the war and challenge these notions in much the same ways that we find uh, Baptist ministers being uh, a sizable part or providing access to certain structures of organization with the American Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, if I could just tag on to that, I, I really like the way that you described that. I think that every opportunity that you get, anyone to remind your right-wing Christian (laughs) friends that there are only basically two lessons of Christianity, and it is to love and forgive. Look at the red parts, people. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) read the red parts. But if if there is a third, it's to do everything in the interest of justice. Those are the things that get lost, I think, in the just noise and the flood of fucking cash of right-wing American Christianity. So yeah, I think there's a lot more conversations to have about this. And by the way, thanks so much, Charles, for bringing this up as a conversation for us today. Yeah, it yeah. was a it was Love a nice mercy, topic. do justice, and walk humbly. That's right. Oh, nice. All right, well, thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, y'all. All right, thanks, y'all. Take care. Take care.